Well, what a treat already for all of us uh, tonight to see the waters of baptism stirred once again. And uh, we know that baptism doesn't uh, save. We know that um, being immersed um, in the baptistry doesn't wash away your sin. It's a picture of what washes away our sin. And what washes away our sin is, the, is what Jesus has accomplished. It's the, the blood of Christ. It's uh, his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. It's placing our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And uh, what a joy uh, to see the Lord at work in, in these people's lives. And, um, and the young people particularly, as um, our, our hosts, two of their children baptized tonight, um, we're just rejoicing with you, and, um, and we praise God. We praise God that he is at work saving people in Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. Well, it's, um, it's, it's almost sad that um, we're here for just a little while longer, and, and just in a few hours, my family and I will be headed out, uh, driving um, down the five and making our way to Burbank to fly uh, to the Midwest for some time. Uh, with our family, it's 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 been a, a bit of a jet tour. I wish we would have had more time. I told my wife that um, that this church uh, takes especially uh, excellent care of me when I come back for the Shepherds Conference, and she said to me this afternoon something along these lines. As a paraphrase, yes, they they do take very good care of their missionaries, don't they? And so, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for praying for us. Uh, thank you so much for supporting us and helping it be possible for us to continue to proclaim the gospel in rugby England and to see the gospel go forth. Well, tonight I want to direct your attention to the scriptures in the Old Testament, and I'd like for you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. I, I think I saw a wife nudge a husband and say, did he say Second Chronicles? It's uh, in the white pages of your Bible, uh, that um, less uh, used uh, section after First Chronicles. You can look it up in the index. Um, and uh, we find ourselves um, in this passage in, in some respects because of a family devotion. A number of years ago now, my wife and I, as is our custom, read the scriptures early in the morning before we start our day. Uh, have a cup of coffee together, and we read, um, we're reading chronologically through the Bible. And it's not our custom to look for sermons in that reading. Uh, but on this particular occasion, we read this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at tonight, and we were both, uh, we both stopped dead in our tracks and said, we need to think about this. This, there is goodness here for us, not just for today, but for weeks and months and for, for years to come. And it's Second uh, Chronicles chapter, chapter 20, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 12, and particularly take our, as our text, verse 12. Second Chronicles chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon together with some of the Munites came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. 
Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. And our primary verse of emphasis tonight, verse 12, O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Do you remember the last time you faced a situation in life in which you did not know what to do? A number of months ago, my wife and I received a missionary update from our missionary friends spreading the gospel in Papua New Guinea, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and our friends met these tribal people deep in the heart of the jungle. And one of the native women said to our friend Melissa, the wife, um, said to her, we haven't seen uh, missionaries for many years. In fact, the last time we saw them, we ate them. Now, that's not, that's not what you want to hear as a missionary going out into the jungle seeking to bring the gospel. The last time we saw missionaries, we ate them. Melissa did not know what to do, nor did she know what to say. Um, the only thing she could think of was to say, well, you're not going to eat us. Now, you may not have stood face to face with cannibals looking at you like a menu in a restaurant. But if you live long enough, you will face situations in which you do not immediately know what to do. My wife and I, as you know, are missionaries in England to the United Kingdom. And we are faced constantly uh, with uh, decisions and, and events in which we do not have a clear understanding of what we ought to do immediately. What, it's, it, you might want to call it those head-scratching moments. What do we do now? What, what should we do? Facing situations 
in which we do not in which we don't know what to do is a regular part of life. And some of you may have come to church today facing very difficult and challenging situations in which you don't know what to do. Perhaps it could be a situation with your job or in your family or your retirement or perhaps your physical health or or with the church. We don't know what to do in this situation. And tonight we're going to study a passage of Scripture that highlights God's sovereignty and His omnipotence over the kingdom and affairs of men, including the difficult, uh, the difficult areas of our lives, those difficult areas in which we're not certain how to proceed. My hope is that this passage of Scripture will help you glorify God through those times of troubling uncertainty when you do not immediately know what to do. God provides a descriptive record here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 of a man named Jehoshaphat who faced a very difficult situation as we've already read. Jehoshaphat faced a situation in his life in which he, which he could not avoid, he could not dismiss, and he could not ignore. It was an inescapable life situation in which he did not know what to do. Uh, we just um, by way of summary, looking at Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse uh, 1 and 2, an enemy gathers and draws near. In verses 3 through 4, fear grips the heart of the king and the people. Prayer and fasting are proclaimed. In verses 5 through 12, the people gather to the king who prays. Isn't that great to have a, a leader who prays in time of national crisis? In verses 13 through 17, the Lord answers prayer. In verses 18 and 19, uh, Judah worships the Lord the day before the war. He, they, they worship the Lord before the battle. And in verses 20 through 30, uh, as you would read on, the Lord triumphs over all Judah's enemies. Let me just say clearly that uh, this is not a, uh, a passage, a name it and claim it passage, in which God is going to heal all of your sicknesses and you're not going to have any problems whatsoever. The battle is always the Lord's. There'll be no failures uh, in, uh, in your life whatsoever. No, this is a passage in which we're highlighting on verse 12, um, drawing our attention on what Jehoshaphat does in a time uh, of uncertainty, in a time in which he doesn't have a clear way forward, a time in which, in a situation in which he cannot deliver himself and he cannot avoid dealing with the matter. He does not know what to do. He's afraid. In 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel divided under Solomon's son Rehoboam. Ten tribes in the north were called Israel. And from 931 B.C. to 722 B.C., Israel, that is the northern ten tribes, uh, had some 20 kings. And all 20 of those kings, according to what we read in Scripture, were bad. All 20 in the north. And the two tribes in the south, that is uh, uh, um, Judah and part of the tribe of Benjamin, according to 1 Kings 12.21, made up the southern kingdom simply called Judah. So you had Israel and Judah, 10 tribes and two in the south. And from 931 BC to 586 BC, Judah also had some 20 kings, out of which 
only eight kings were commended in Scripture. One of those commended kings was Jehoshaphat, who we have in this passage of Scripture. Jehoshaphat was a descendant of David. His name means Yahweh judges or Yahweh has judged. He's first mentioned in 1 Kings 15.24. He was 35 years old when he began to reign in Judah, and he ruled for 25 years in Jerusalem. Jehoshaphat's father was King Asa, king of Judah, who reigned for about 38 years. His father, Asa, was also commended as being a good king. The MacArthur Study Bible points out that Jehoshaphat made at least three strategic moves during his reign. In chapter 17, verse 6, first of all, he obeyed the Lord. Second, Jehoshaphat removed false worship from the land in 17.6. And thirdly, he sent out teachers who taught the people the law of the Lord in chapter 17, verses 7 through 9. King Jehoshaphat did much good in Judah. He uh, banished perverted people in the land in 1 Kings 22.46. Scripture best describes uh, Jehoshaphat in, seven, in chronic, 2 Chronicles 17, verses 3 to 6, and 1 Kings 22, verses 43 and 44. Listen to these words about how Scripture describes this king. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years he walked in the ways of his father David had followed. He did not consult the Baals. He sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. So why study Jehoshaphat? Why draw your attention on Sunday night to Jehoshaphat? Well, you see, Jehoshaphat was commended. But if you know, if you've studied and read Jehoshaphat, you know that he was still, though he was commended, he was an imperfect man. There are really two kinds of sermons we can preach about Jehoshaphat from from the Scriptures. We can preach about the blunders of Jehoshaphat. Uh, or we can, uh, we can preach about the success. So when we think about Jehoshaphat, I want you to get your eyes and, and your mind around the fact that we're looking at a person who doesn't always make the right decisions. He's kind of like you, and he's kind of like me. And sometimes he looks to the Lord, and sometimes he doesn't look to the Lord. In fact, the passage that we're going to look at highlights a, a very instructive time in which Jehoshaphat looks to the Lord. Sadly, there'll be other times where Jehoshaphat doesn't look to the Lord. He looks to his own wisdom. And we would preach probably uh, what not to do by looking at Jehoshaphat from those, past, uh, from those uh, sections of Scripture. But here in Second Chronicles chapter 20, we see a positive example Uh, that uh, Jehoshaphat uh, gives to us. And um, though he is still a sinner who made foolish decisions, uh, which you can read about, the primary reason we're studying him today is because he gives an example for believers to follow when circumstances of life are beyond your control. And that's what I really, I think that's the universal human experience 
that we all have times in which there are circumstances in our lives, in our ministries, in our families, in our jobs, where the circumstances are beyond our control and we're left asking, what should we do? How should we respond? Concerning the Old Testament, Paul said in Romans 15:4, for whatever was written in earlier times, referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So if you ask why Jehoshaphat, it's because I want to address a people who regularly face circumstances in which they're uncertain with how to deal with those circumstances and to do it in a way in which you can be filled with hope. The title of tonight's message, drawn from verse 12, is What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. And there are four responses that believers should have when you don't know what to do, when you are facing life circumstances beyond your control, like, like Jehoshaphat, who provides for us the great example in verse 12. He says, O oh, our God, will you not judge them? The, the, first, uh, the first, when you're facing life circumstances beyond your control, like Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat you should appeal to a great God. That's what he does. He appeals to God's sovereignty. Uh, he says, oh, our God. Now, he, he prays to a great God. Uh, he was facing these circumstances uh, in, in which he had these armies coming against him, and he appeals to the one and only person uh, who could uh, provide him the help and the deliverance that he needed. Jehoshaphat appeals to a great God. Firstly, he, he prays to a great God. This is what we see. We're in the middle of him praying here. He, he begins to pray in, uh, in verse uh, 5, or in beginning of verse 6, and he said, O Lord our God. And, and by the time we're in verse 12, he's still praying, O our God. He prays, uh, he appeals to a sovereign God, to a great God. You remember in Psalm 103, 19, one of my favorite verses in all the Psalms, the Lord says that I have established my throne in the heavens and my sovereignty rules over all. I like that word sovereignty. You know, we, we live in Britain where we have a monarch, where, where we have a queen who rules over us and, and the royal family and all that, all that good stuff. Um, but it is, it is the Lord who has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. We have a sovereign God, a great God, who knows not only what you're going through and what I'm going through as, a, as one of His followers, but is keenly interested uh, in, in helping His people. We read earlier today, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that where we're commanded, do not be anxious about everything, but in every, anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I ask the question, all right, so Jehoshaphat, like many of us, was facing a difficult situation and like many of us facing difficult situations, he appeals to a great God and he prays. But I want to know where did Jehoshaphat learn how to pray like this? 
And to answer that question, you'll need to keep your finger there in chapter 20 and turn back to chapter 14, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And look at verse 8. This is an account um, addressing his father, King Asa. Now Asa, 2 Chronicles 14, 8, had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing spears, shields, and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Verse 9. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men. Okay, now I'm no math major, but look there in the previous, in verse 8, 300,000 and 280,000. Someone do the math for me. What is it? 580,000. Okay, that's his side. And the Ethiopian, he comes out against them with an army of a million who's got more, it's pretty intuitively obvious to the casual observer. And in addition to the million men, he has 300 chariots. And he came to Marashah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah at Marashah. Then Asa, listen to verse 11, called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Back to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Where do you think Jehoshaphat learned how to pray as desperately as he does in Second Chronicles 20? From a godly father. It was the example of a godly father who was in a very difficult situation in which he did not know what to do himself except appealed to a great God and his sovereignty. He prays to a great God. But not only does Jehoshaphat pray to a great God, he prays to a great God that he knows personally. He knows this God. He says in 2 Chronicles 26, O Lord God of our fathers. 2 Chronicles 27, O our God. Do you notice the the difference there as you move from verse 6 to verse 7? In verse 6, Yahweh is the God of his fathers, Asa. But in verse 7 now, Yahweh is his God. Oh, our God. Don't miss that. There, there is a, there's something to be learned here uh, if we don't rush by so quickly. Oh, our God, in verse 12, will you not judge them? In other words, there must be a movement from the God of our fathers to our God. And that, that's true for you as well as it's true for me. It's true for parents as well as true for you children, teenagers. There needs to be a progression from the God of our fathers addressing God that way to say, oh, our God. He's a great God. 
he is a, he is a sovereign God. He is a great God who needs to be known personally. Let me say it this way. The faith of his fathers, listen, the faith of his fathers cannot save him. But the God of Jehoshaphat's fathers can. I hope, I hope you can get that. Children, you will never be forgiven for your sins because dad and mom believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. You may be in a Christian family as a young person, but being born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. His father's God, that is Asa, Asa's God, must become Jehoshaphat's God. And in chapter 20, you see that shift in his prayer from the God of our fathers to, oh, our God. He is saying that Yahweh is my God. That's what Jehoshaphat was saying. And so it is in our own day. It is not enough that our children know about our faith. They must know our God personally. And parents, though we cannot save our children, though we cannot believe for them in a saving way, we can live in a way that exalts Christ and makes Him known and puts Him on display. We can talk to our children. Don't just live a godly life around your children. Speak to them about Christ. Speak to them about their need of a Savior. Speak to them about knowing God. The way you come to know Yahweh, the God, of, uh, the God of all creation of heaven and earth, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Each must come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the message of the gospel. It's not enough that your parents believe. It's not enough. It's not enough that you're part of a Christian home. You must believe um, Jehoshaphat's fathers uh, believed on the Lord, and he too had to believe on the Lord. So facing life's circumstances beyond his control, Jehoshaphat appeals to a great God. Secondly, facing life's circumstances beyond his control, Jehoshaphat acknowledges a great foe. Or you might say he has an incredible problem. Uh, the translations state the problem well. The NIV says, in ver- regarding verse 12, we have no power to face this vast enemy that is attacking us. The ESV says, we are powerless against the great hordes, the horde that is coming against us. Now, we know from reading the Bible that overcoming great foes is a key part of the history of the Lord's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now think of all the battles against the greatest foes the world has known through its history. Now think about the battle against the Egyptians. Now think about the, the Philistines with Goliath. Um, think, about, um, think about these foes that they faced in the Assyrians and, and later the Babylonians. And, and then after the Babylonians, the, the Greeks, the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. The Bible is filled with with battles, conflicts, wars. One world power replacing the other world power. Jehoshaphat is acknowledging that he's up against a great foe. It is the difficult situation that leads to prayer in this context. 
Uh, he's not a foxhole Christian. He, he's not like, Lord, if you just get me out of this tough mess, he's not, he's not, he's not saying, he's not only going to God in prayer uh, in the difficulty. He has an access to God uh, in a difficult time. It seems he knows God personally. It seems he knows how to uh, uh, pray and come before the Lord. And this difficult situation leads to prayer in this context. Certainly, the historical context speaks of a great foe, the great foe being that of the coalition of the Ammonites, Moabites, and the Edomites, found in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 10. The Ammonites and the Moabites are the descendants of Lot through his drunken, incestuous relationships with his two daughters. And the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, who held a grudge against Jacob, and apparently this grudge only gave way to violence after Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. And what they did is, these nations came together, the Ammonites, the the Moabites, the Edomites, they came together in order to oppose uh, Jehoshaphat in Judah, and they were a sizable force, a million to 580,000, with 300 chariots on their sides. Now, the principle here in, in highlighting the great foe, I'd call it the great problem, because really Jehoshaphat was faced with a great problem. He, it was a great foe, but it a, the principle here is facing a great problem from which you cannot run or hide. Why do I say that? Well, none of you here are going to face a coalition of Ammonites. None of you here are going to face a coalition of Moabites and Edomites over the next few days, weeks, or months. So you might just say, well, that's a history lesson. That's in the past. But I think the principle here is facing an overwhelming force of opposition in which you cannot have victory on your own. Many of you are currently facing or will soon be facing some sort of uncertainty, concern, or weighty problem that will tempt you to sinful worry and anxiety. I know for a fact that there are some situations happening in the church medically uh, that could easily lead to sinful anxiety. I already know that, and you know that, many of you. Let me share with you how suddenly you could face a an everyday problem that could easily lead to sinful anxiety. Many years ago, around Christmas time, when I was uh, sick with a bad flu, one of our sons, and I'll not name him because he's in the service today, fell out of the bunk bed and he hit his face on the post on the lower bed. So he fell from up here and he, his eye found the post. Now, one of our rules in our house is I don't have to deal with anything dealing with blood uh, because I just, boof, I'll just fall over. My mom was an emergency room nurse. That wouldn't work for me because, boom, I just go down. So Kathy gathered our son up and took him to the emergency room while I stayed home, like a coward, with the other two boys, thinking the worst of his injuries. I mean, his his face was just split open. The, the cheekbone was coming through. And, and I thought, oh, my son's got brain damage. He's, he's going to die. Uh, I'm thinking the worst of his injuries, you know, not just stitches, bleeding on the brain, hemorrhaging in his skull, the very worst that can possibly be medically. Any medical TV show I've ever watched all came to my mind. And while in this worried, anxious frame of mind, 
A man, a, a man in our church, an elderly man in our church, rang the doorbell and he dropped off some gifts for the children. I explained what happened and a number of my concerns, and I asked him to pray, which he said he would do. And as he turned away to leave, he said something like, Pastor, uh, trust the Lord. He'll work it out. You'll see. Uh, To which I responded as if on autopilot, yes, I'm trusting the Lord. And he stopped dead in his tracks. He turned around and he looked at me and he said, no, you're not. He was right. My heart melted. I was ashamed when I was confronted with my sinful anxiety and my unbelief. I faced, uh, I, I, I faced him. I said, I'm not trusting the Lord. And then I thanked him for helping me see that, that I was worrying when I should have been praying. Uh, I was sinfully anxious when I should have been appealing to a God who has no limitations. How quickly in in life's moments we can be confronted with something that seems so overwhelming and and feel so helpless like I did. And so I told him that that I would go to the Lord immediately and repent. And so I gathered my other two children in the living room. We knelt down at the couch and we stayed there praying until the matter of worry and anxiety We're completely left in the hands of a sovereign God. No matter what was going to be the outcome, God was good. God was good. And when I rose from our living room floor that day, I learned that it is one thing to say you're trusting the Lord. And it is another thing to cast all your cares on Him, knowing that He cares for you. Well, when you're facing life circumstances beyond your control... You need to appeal to a great God. He's sovereign over all. You need to acknowledge that the problem you're facing is great or the opposition you're facing is great and you are helpless. You are in need of God's help. But thirdly, when you're facing life circumstances beyond your control, you need to do what Jehoshaphat did and you need to make a great admission. In verse 12, he makes this incredible admission of humility Notice it. Look down at the text. Look it down at verse 12. He says, we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Here's the the great admission. Nor do we know what to do. How many elders meetings have you had faced with an inexplicable situation? Deacons meetings to say, I have no idea, even collectively, what, how we should respond to this difficulty. Congregation, in a, in a family with a husband and wife, we do not know what to do. This is a universal, common human experience. For some, you have too many choices And you're perplexed. You could get this job. You could get that job. You can go to this school. You can go to that school. You can play on this team. You can play on that team. And you're saying, I don't know what to do. I've got too many choices. And then there's the other side. uh, Where you have no choices. Where you're in a difficult situation like Jehoshaphat. You have too few choices or no choices. And you're perplexed. We've all been there. Some of us are there right now. 
What do we do next on the mission field? What do we do next when these guys graduate? What do we do next when this thing happens? What do we do if the school kicks us out and we don't know where to meet? Some of you might be here right now facing life circumstances beyond your control. Why is it that some people think that they have to have all the answers, Pastor? It's, it has to be haughty pride. I knew a pastor who once said to me, way back east, I wish my son would ask me for advice because I have all the answers. Many parents think this from time to time, but can I say it's not true? Uh, parents, we have experience. But we don't have all the answers. We, we don't want our children to experience pain, but we don't know everything. We must teach our children to get counsel from us and other godly men and women. But the most, most importantly, we must teach our children to look to God. And be honest with God in prayer about their perplexities and their struggles. Dad, Mom, you're not the key to your children's future. God is. And your job is by example and by direction to drive your children to the Lord. He will never fail them. He will never flag. We will. And so I wonder, as you face those times of uncertainty, is that the kind of example you're giving your kids? Or do you preach a better sermon than you live? Most of us do, right? But what we ought to be doing by a life's example is to say to our children sometimes, you know what, mom and dad are facing this, and and we don't really know what to do. But we know someone who does. And we're going to apply to him. And we're going to trust Him. And no matter what, we know He'll make our path straight. And no matter if it's painful or difficult, He'll never leave us nor forsake us. We don't know what to do. But did you see what Jehoshaphat said following that? Look down at verse 12. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He made a great admission. He made a great admission that we don't know what to do, but facing life circumstances beyond his control, Jehoshaphat demonstrates a great faith. Our eyes are on you. Isn't that what faith is? Faith is not knowing the future. I like to describe trusting God as as a, as a divine corner in the road. It's like, you're coming up to a, uh, it's like you're coming up to a bend in the road in which you can't see around uh, the other side. You don't know if there's a Mack truck coming uh, or, or a pillow. <laughs> it could be devastation or it could be glory. Uh, and God doesn't let us see. You know, we, we were traveling from uh, over the, uh, the motorway here. The, I'm sorry, the highway. And um, it, you could see like a straight line forever. It's amazing views. And, um, uh, but that's not life. 
And that's not your life, and that's not my life as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, our lives are filled with corners and turns. There's in Britain, we say swings and roundabouts. And why is that? I believe, he says, that the just shall live by faith is not only the means by which you become justified by faith. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And those who come to God must first believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We must live, we are saved by faith, but we also have to live by faith. That's the missionary life, but it's for every believer. You you don't know the end from the beginning like He does. And these divine corners, these divine bends force us to trust Him step by step. What we want to know is, We want that long, straight line so we can say, yes, that's about right. Yeah, we did it. That's the right decision. We could see how it's going to turn out. But what we need to do is we need to trust the Lord because we don't know what's around the corner. Jehoshaphat demonstrates a great faith. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Remember in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus is walking on the water? And, um, and uh, Peter says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee under the water. That's the old A.V. And Jesus said to Peter, come. And, and when Peter was, uh, he was coming down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus, Matthew 14, 30. But when he saw the winds boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased, and they, and they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. When he looked at the winds boisterous around him, he began to sink. Jesus attributes his sinking to little faith. He's not trusting the God in the Lord as he should. That's Jesus' own verdict in, in verse uh, 31 of Matthew uh, 14. O thou of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Or what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? <laughs> Their faith. In Daniel three sixteen and 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered. Remember the king said, we want you to bow down uh, uh, to the image. And they said, o, o Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18. But if not, that is, if God chooses not to deliver us from the flame and from death, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Jehoshaphat had no guarantee that he would be delivered. But he knew that he was desperate. And he demonstrated great faith by looking to the Lord. You see, without faith, it is impossible to please him. In our lives, we are called to live by faith. All of us face or will face uncertainty, pressures, fears, 
temptations to sinful anxiety and worry because we do not know what to do. And Jehoshaphat gives us four responses so that we'll know what to do when we don't know what to do. We know now that we should appeal to a great God. We should acknowledge a great problem or a great foe. We should make a great admission. We don't know what to do. And we should demonstrate a great faith. Our eyes are on you. I don't know what you're facing, but I know that if it's not now, it will be soon, that you will face a circumstance in which you don't know what to do. And my prayer for you is that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures like this, you'll have hope and you'll know how to turn that circumstance of uncertainty into a certain plan of action which will bring you to the person, the only one, who can help you. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture Lord, we know that this is not a blank check that you will deliver us out of all the problems of life and that we won't experience pain and suffering. We read only a few pages before and a few pages after in in the Scriptures that life is, is full of trouble and man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. And But Lord, we have seen the illustration of a man who faced circumstances in which he did not know what to do. And we can identify, Lord, with that reality today in 2019. For some of us, Lord, we don't know what to do in our marriages. We don't know what to do with our children. We don't know what to do with our jobs and in our families. We don't know what to do in the church. Lord, for some, uh, the burden is painful. Lord, perhaps in our jobs, in legal matters, we don't know what to do. I pray that you would grant us the humility and the faith that we see demonstrated in this commended king, Jehoshaphat, to look to you and say, our eyes are on you. And Lord, if you choose not to deliver us, Lord, help us to still trust you. So help us, Lord, we pray, and get glory to your name. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.